And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Well, a couple of years ago, I got a phone call from a young man I'd worked with for years in the past, and he was in trouble, and he was going to court, uh, facing a sentence that could have put him in jail for the first time. And in his case, I knew exactly what happened that got him to this point. Uh, It had everything to do with the way that he grew up and the fears that he dealt with and the demons that he faced. Um, And he had made a a poor judgment in a moment of fear. And so I wrote a letter to a judge who I'd never met pleading for mercy. Um, I told her that I wasn't arguing that he hadn't done anything wrong, but that in his case, that going to jail would make it worse. It would take somebody who had fears and demons and just drive them uh, deeper into his soul. And, um, and that we'd be taking, you know, essentially a damaged young man and adding to the damage. And my argument, and I stated it, was that mercy in this case would transform him more than punishing him to the full extent of the law. And the judge did extend mercy. Um, I don't know if it was my letter, um, but I can't say, right, that it hurt. She did do what I had requested be done. Now, that story could stretch our understanding of God's people or the Christian community because I uh, was acting on behalf of somebody who wasn't in the community of believers at the time. I had worked at a church when I was, uh, when I was young, when I, when I was 18 years old, I got the job, and he was a five-year-old kid who couldn't ever be home, so he hung out at the church all the time, um, and we would joke that I had to be like his dad and tell him to do his homework and stuff like that. But before I was in his life and then after uh, when he moved away and we got kind of out of touch, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't involved in the community of believers at all. Um, all that he had was a Bible that I gave him when he was a kid that he told me that he still treasures and he reads. But he knew when he was in trouble who he could call. And I want you to imagine for a moment something that I do believe to some degree is already true here. And, and I imagine that, you know, that people in our circles of influence do know this. Um, imagine that when people went through tough times that they knew they could call you and me, that they knew that they could come to you. Not only could they come to us, but that we would be ready for them, um, that we would be able and willing to share and advocate and help them with whatever they were going through. Now, there are a whole lot of things to consider here, and it sounds nice, but As anyone who has tried something like this knows, it's not simple. People are very messy, it turns out, and situations are complex. And so that's why looking into the Bible for wisdom is a great place to start. So Fiona just just read for us this letter that we call Philemon. Last week, John did an excellent job of summarizing the whole thing. Um, You you can go listen to that. I really would encourage you to. Um, So we've, we've... heard it read tonight. John did a deep dive. So I'll just say briefly that Paul is a key leader in the Christian um, community, in the Christian story. He was, a, he, he was a persecutor of Christians. He actually put them on trial to put them to death. And he had um, an experience of Jesus after Jesus had died. And it shook him deeply. And in that experience, he was Um, told, he heard the voice of Jesus, but then he was later, uh, 
instructed in the way of Jesus and told what to do and how to follow Jesus and accept his work on his behalf, and it utterly transformed his life. He became what we call an apostle, meaning he went all over the world, uh, the known world, the area where he could travel, um, telling people about what Jesus had done and encouraging them to follow Jesus. And so he traveled and he wrote letters to people that he had visited in the past. And this is one of those letters. He had visited and known this man named Philemon, and he's writing a letter back to him. But this is a unique one. As John said last week, um, often we can read this letter and, and kind of get struck with the slavery element in it. But the letter is not really about slavery. Philemon, um, in Paul's view, was a good man. He's in a community with other noteworthy believers. There's this woman named Aphia, a man named Archippus. These are good people that Paul is writing back to and saying, you are people who encourage me, who I trust. Um, Philemon's the type of man that believes the good news of Jesus to the extent that his large home is the meeting place for the church. Um, and stories are circulating that Paul's heard about, about his faith and how much he loves others and how he tells people about Jesus. It sort of um, reminds me of the, the little tastes of that we get in our church of people like Julie and Zach and Cruz, who, um, not to embarrass you, but are known for being willing to speak to their friends about Jesus, and it encourages us to hear those kind of stories. Paul is deeply encouraged by that too, and he sees the fact that when he shares what Jesus has done, it has the potential to change lives, and his faith uh, has encouraged Paul and comforted him. So Philemon, who did have servants in his home, um, was actually being, in many ways, encouraged and praised by Paul. Having servants in his home was common, and Onesimus had been one of his servants. And we don't know exactly what happened between Paul, or uh, sorry, Philemon and Onesimus. But Paul says in this letter that formerly Onesimus was useless to him, and that's that's kind of a, a pretty heavy thing to say. Let's imagine what he could have meant. Um, Maybe Onesimus, who'd been a servant in his house, um, and, and he'd met Paul in prison, so maybe what he had done to Philemon is actually what sent him to prison. It could have been that level, right? Or he ran away from, from his home where he worked and, and got in further trouble and ended up in prison. Um, or Philemon dismissed him because he was a, a crummy worker and things spiraled down from there and he ended up in prison, or maybe, because we don't really know, maybe he just uh, liked to visit prisons, um, and uh, maybe he wasn't imprisoned after all. But he met Paul while Paul was in prison. Whatever the case, Paul met Onesimus when he was kind of a mess, maybe a massive mess, maybe amidst the biggest failure of his life, um, because a servant at the time had the opportunity to earn their freedom and potentially even inherit part of the estate so Onesimus had been in the house of a good man in a wealthy home, somebody who had the type of home that could host an entire Christian community, and he had blown it and was no longer there and maybe recently had lost all of those options and ended up in prison. Whatever the case, um, this is not Paul simply writing a little note saying, hey, slavery's bad, um, don't make this guy a slave anymore. He was writing to a man, Philemon, who had been wronged and defrauded, saying this to him, essentially, believe in the transformative power of God's grace in the life of someone who has wronged you. 
That's what Paul's asking for. Now, this is a difficult teaching. And I don't think I'm alone here. It sure is difficult for me. It is difficult for me to believe that by God's mercy, people can change. Now, I actually have an easier time with people who didn't do anything to me, but to somebody else. But it's even harder when someone's choices have impacted me personally. It can be really hard to trust again or to hope again. And here Paul is saying to Philemon, this person who has done whatever he did, um, don't just bring him back to the status he was in before. Actually upgrade him and consider him to be your brother. Not a slave, not a servant anymore. Receive him back with a higher status than he had previously. Am I alone here in struggling to believe that I could do this if Paul or anybody asked me to? It's a tough call. It's a hard teaching. But if grace is what it is, if it is unearned mercy, then God forgave me when my choices impacted him and sent him to a cross. Think about it. Perhaps outside of the mercy of God, I am useless to God. Perhaps even hostile. If it weren't for his mercy, I couldn't even call myself a Christian. If God can do that for me, which can also be hard to believe, he can do it for those who've sinned against me. This is one of the most fundamental things we must understand. For some of us, we believe that God can forgive others, but it's hard to believe that he could transform us. But if grace is what it is, no one is beyond it. Now, we'll come back to this, but I want to examine how Paul was able to make this appeal on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon to forgive him because I believe that we would be a more impactful community. We're calling this transformative community. We would be a more transformative community if we were making such appeals to one another on behalf of those who have sinned. And we need to consider how to cultivate the soil in which these things can happen. So Paul is asking Philemon C to do something very costly, potentially risky and quite revolutionary. It's a hard sell. And we need to understand how he appealed to Philemon to do such a thing. So how do we cultivate these things? Paul appealed using, I'm going to say, spiritual wisdom. And I'll explain that. Relational strength a knowledge of the situation, and a willingness to sacrifice for others. All of those undergirded his appeal to Philemon. Spiritual wisdom, relational strength, knowledge of the situation, sacrifice for the sake of others. Something that strikes you when you slow down and and read this letter is that Paul knows the beliefs that they share. A word for that would be orthodoxy, right beliefs. He had accurate Christian beliefs around the ideas of God's mercy, around the ideas of the authority that he technically has. Paul has an understanding of their shared faith, but he knows that a gracious approach is going to be the most influential. A gracious approach is most wise. Um, do we know that? Um, if, you wanna, if you want to help someone change at the heart level, you will have to approach them the way Jesus approaches you. So Paul appeals 
for obedience, though he says he knew he could have commanded it. This is interesting. Um, Why could he have commanded it? So Jesus actually shared a parable when he was walking the earth, and it was a story. A, A parable is a story with a true principle in it. And it was a parable about two servants, and one had been, been forgiven a massive debt. That servant had been, been forgiven this, this huge, huge debt. And then someone owed him a fraction of what his debt had been, and he refused to forgive them. So he receives massive forgiveness, refuses to offer a smaller level of forgiveness, and that servant who had been forgiven but was unforgiving was judged severely. Now, why? Because our response to grace exposes our hearts. If we are recipients of God's grace and we will not generously be gracious to others, it is a bad sign. A bad sign indeed. It exhibits one of many things. Number one, pride, that we're better and more deserving than others. If you think this is true, this is not a good sign. Or it can expose hard-heartedness that you do not comprehend your own status with God, that that the reason that you're living and breathing, able to pray, is all of grace and not because you deserve it. Or maybe, maybe even the worst, is that you understand the graciousness of God and you want to use it for your own benefit without extending that benefit to others. And these things happen. And when grace is extended to somebody, sometimes that gets exposed. It's often a tangled web, though. And it takes a lot of patience to discern these things. There's a show called Father Stew on Netflix. John, I'm not going to spoil it. It's new. I can't do that. Only when they're like 10 years old or something. Um, Check it out and and look for the, the jealousy between two potential priests and how there's more to the story. It's a cautionary moment in there. Don't be too too quick to decide somebody's fate. But back to the point, avoiding spoilers. Um, This parable about Jesus and the unmerciful servant means Paul could have commanded Philemon to forgive. He could have pointed him to the parable. He could have said, look, you have been forgiven a lot. You must forgive this man. You must forgive Onesimus, but... Because grace begets grace, and grace also exposes darkness, Paul leads with grace. When you want to encourage grace, the best path is to extend grace. Another another way of saying it would be words of grace are best exhibited by actual actions of grace. And then if you want to understand somebody's heart, grace is the most accurate test of the heart. It is the best path forward. It's counterintuitive and it can feel risky, but Paul does it right here. He appeals to his friend. He compliments his faith and how he shares his faith. And in essence, he entreats him. He says, will you share grace, unmerited favor, undeserved love to the person who's wronged you? Will you bring him closer? Will you call him a brother as Jesus has elevated you, Philemon, by his forgiveness and mercy to being his brother? Will you Will you give him that grace? And that's a spiritually wise approach. Here's a question. Think about your life. Do we have the spiritual wisdom to craft gracious and effective strategies to call for change in others? 
Or are we still operating on the principles of the world which do these kind of things, manipulate, guilt trip, pressure, incentivize, worry, or threaten? When you're going about the change you want to see in somebody's life, do you have the spiritual wisdom to craft gracious and effective strategies? Or are you still manipulating, guilt-tripping, putting pressure on, incentivizing, worrying, or threatening? And that challenges me. Those approaches are not grace. What if we trusted in the power of mercy? So Paul exercised spiritual wisdom, and as John showed us last week, there's a solid chance in church history this former servant, Onesimus, became a bishop, which means, would mean, that grace and the gracious approach worked profoundly and transformed that relationship and transformed the people involved. So spiritual wisdom. Then Paul exercised relational strength. Um, How is Paul able to reach uh, Philemon and be so bold? Well, it's clear in this letter he knew Philemon very, very well. If there's one thing that comes through when you read the book of Acts, which is kind of a history of the early church, and the letters that Paul writes to the churches, you see that Paul got to know these people very well. They came to hear everything he said whenever he was in town. They mourned when he left. He worked other jobs among him, and they respected him. He wept with them. He shared his entire life in his words with them. So when he met Onesimus in prison, he didn't have to Google his former master and go, who's that? I know they didn't have Google. You know, he didn't have to ask around. He didn't have to like recall the one conversation he ever had with him. He knew his master well. He called him his brother. Philemon had comforted him, he said. He said they'd had joyous moments together, much joy. Imagine like belly laughs together. Like this is probably the level of relationship that they'd had for him to go into that much detail. Paul isn't just leaning on him being a Christian. They were close. So close he assumed that he would prepare a room for him to stay in his house when he came back home. That's a deep level of relationship. I've recently experienced a couple pieces of this. Like I've gone out of town a couple times. I was in Chicago twice and I made a friend the first time. And the second time when I called him to ask where he would get a hotel, he said, just stay in my house. And he invited me up to his rooftop to have beers and look at the city of Chicago. And we talked for hours. Sometimes you discover a deeper level of friendship, right? And then sometimes there's the people you can laugh with. I met uh, a man named Rick from Alberta on my most recent trip, and he's this guy that just lights up your life. And we went to the the Toronto Blue Jays and, and the Tampa Bay Rays game, and there's a guy whose last name is Siri, and he says, hey, do you think anybody, uh," well, he's Canadian, so he's like, hey, hey, you think anybody ever makes like, hey, Siri jokes to this guy? And we're like, yes, like constantly. And he's like, I'm doing it again. And the guy gets up, he's like, hey, Siri, see if you can hit the ball. You know, and we're just like, oh, oh man. But you start laughing. Like, that's the kind, like, that's the type of relationship they had though. Joyous, where you could stay at their house. Like it went to a deeper level. So Paul had a spiritually wise approach, but he had relational strength. He, he knew Philemon, who he wrote to. He knew he, who he was appealing to deeply. 
but he also had a real knowledge of the situation. This probably derives from that relational strength, but it's a little more. Look at the nuance. Paul knew that they had the master to servant relationship, but he knew about what happened to the level that he was able to acknowledge his uselessness to him. I mean, I think that word is strong, but I think it shows us how much Paul knew about the situation. He knew enough about Philemon to know that an appeal to him was so likely to work that he was already sending Onesimus on his way when he sent the letter, assuming he would agree. You have to be aware of many factors to thread a needle that well. And Paul exhibited this. He's calculated. He's informed. A lot of us are looking for churches that offer excellent sermons or worship experiences, us and our friends, right? And those can be fine, but... But to be a part of a transformative community, we have to know each other that well. And we have a lot of work to do there, I think. We have to have a lot more depth. So Paul exercises spiritual wisdom, solid Christian beliefs um, from a position of relational strength. He knows the situation well. And not only that, he didn't just ask Philemon to take a risk on this person. He was willing to take one too. He was willing to sacrifice, make a personal sacrifice. Here with, um, you know, you, you have to see here. And we have to admit that there, there might be some part of the story that Paul didn't even know. And he admitted it. He, he's humble in saying, look, if there's more I don't know about, if there's a debt I am unaware of, if he owes you something or has done something to you I don't even know about, charge it to me, he says. Charge it to me. I will pay. He like gets his wallet out. He says, I will pay. If there's an unresolved debt or a wrong that I haven't heard about from Onesimus, I will absorb that debt to make sure this reconciliation occurs. Forgiveness and grace are always costly and risky and there is no guaranteed return. And so Paul says, I will absorb the debt. Um, when Dante and I talked about his baptism, I brought up something that Jesus said about counting the costs, and we talked about this um, together. Sometimes we can assume the most difficult cost that Jesus might be sharing is to be rejected, mocked, or persecuted, or the like. And I don't want to belittle those. They do occur. But so often, the cost of following Jesus is the cost to serve and forgive others, to lay down my rights my rights to be resentful and hold a grudge, and it can be very, very costly. You know, forgiveness is a troublesome thing philosophically. Um, I'll give you an example of this. I like our mailbox a lot. Um, I found this cool old mailbox, and I found these really nice uh, mid-century blocks and put way too much thought into this mailbox. Um, and I have a legitimate worry anytime somebody visits our house, that they are going to hit it and knock it over because I can't get those blocks at the store and I can never find that mailbox again. It's, they're, they're unique. Um, so imagine, um, right, that you come over to my house and now you're all going to be paranoid of this, I'm, I'm aware. But you come over to my house and you clip and nail my mailbox and, uh, and take it out and you get out and you go, oh, man, I really should have looked where I was going. I was wrong. And you know what? I am so sorry. Okay, 
thank you. But my mailbox is still on the ground, right? There's a problem. Like, forgiveness is going to mean I am going to absorb the cost of my mailbox. I have to buy the things. I might never have the same one back again, right? I mean, how much more when someone's life is taken, right? Right? You've heard of the people that forgave the murderer, like, but they will never bring back the, the I'm sorry doesn't pay the cost, right? That's the problem with forgiveness. But imagine um, in my mailbox analogy, which is a little bit simpler, that we, you and I are having this conversation and you give your heartfelt apology and I'm really going to try to say that's cool, right? And then someone walks up and says, hey, um, you know what? I will pay and I will search and I will, re- and I will repair and replace this mailbox um, so that you guys can take that issue off the table and reconcile. Oh, well, that is a profound interjection. Who could do it, right? Who's capable of such a thing? But in this case, um, Paul has added something of that nature to the Philemon Onesimus relationship. He said, if there's anything, anything wrong, I will pay. I will enter in, I will absorb the cost so that that issue isn't in, in the mix of this and isn't causing a problem for you too. And we are called to such things. We are called to apply the mercy of Jesus to people, but also to offer Jesus-shaped forgiveness. And we can't always get to the level Jesus can, but our appeals to one another can be shaped by the work of Jesus. Now, this raises all sorts of questions. Um, and you, you can't forget the spiritual wisdom and knowledge side of this. Our deacons here, when, um, when they become deacons, they read a book called When Helping Hurts. And it teaches you to get to the root of issues and not just help in such a way that reinforces the issues that people have. But if you're not careful, you'll miss something when you read a book like that. Because it may teach you not to hand out checks. But when you read a book like that, it will encourage you to get more deeply and sacrificially involved, not less. It will, call, it will call you to more costly service, not less. It's gonna call you to go deeper into the transformation of a soul, which could be lifelong work rather than writing the Band-Aid check. But it doesn't call for less. They call for more. I think it would be good um, to assume something like this, by the way, that though this is the only letter like this of Paul that he probably did other such things and encouraged other such things. We should probably be imagining what it would have looked like to exercise this wisdom and relational ties and knowledge of the situations and the situations that we face where we might have to appeal for others. Like my friend who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, not exactly the same situation, but what would it look like to appeal for someone like that? What about someone who's disabled? What about somebody who's been abused or hurt by the church? What do you think Paul might have said? I think that those are good questions to ask. What I know is we should be known as a transformative community, that we should be people who others look to when they need an advocate, when they need wisdom, when they need to be known. And I'm proud to say I do see that here in you. And I believe it's present even when I don't 
see it. And I know we can also grow in this. So I want us to ask, what would it take for us to be more like this? To have a deeper knowledge of the implications of our, fe- of our faith, a deeper knowledge of each other. What would it take for us to become more and more of a transformative community, one that engages this deeply, counts the cost, and serves one another? Well, we're about to meditate on it in a couple of ways. With the two practices that Jesus left with us, they're meant to shape our hearts. Tonight, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, and then Dante, like I said, will be baptized. And these are profound meditations on such things. We know in the Lord's Supper that on the night Jesus was betrayed, even before he was betrayed, he taught his disciples to serve. He'd washed their feet. And he told them that that the, the call to follow him is a call to go and serve other people. And then he took the bread from the table, and he broke it, and he said, take this and eat it. This is my body broken for you. What must he have been saying? He was saying, I am about to serve you in a way more profound than you could ever understand. And he took the wine from the table and he said, drink this. This is the new covenant, a new promise in my blood for the forgiveness of many. What must he have been saying? My servanthood to you is how you will be forgiven. Forgiven not just of what you've done to God the Father, but to others. He's saying, I will be coming in and absorbing the debt between you and God and you and everyone else. This means that Paul was offering to Philemon and Onesimus what he had experienced Jesus do for him when he said, I will pay the debts that he owes you. He was living out of the Lord's Supper. He was living out of the cross. He was living out of the work of Jesus Christ. God sees our creator, our life giver. He sustains every molecule and holds everything together. And not only do we forget about him most of the time, but we make a mess of the life he's given us. We knock down all kinds of proverbial mailboxes in our own lives and in the lives of others, sometimes on accident, and sometimes because we're rebelling and we're angry. And we can become, truthfully at the core, quite useless to God. We often don't count what it would cost to pay our debt. We don't look at how vast and how frequent we fall short of the standard of God's love and faithfulness that we should be offering. And Jesus, who came to earth and was so faithful that the apostle Peter said, we couldn't even find a lie that he told. Who was that faithful to his father steps in and says, I will pay the debt. I will absorb the cost. And that is the work of the cross. And it was so wonderfully sacrificial, so full of truth and grace that God honored that sacrifice, the Bible says, by raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to the right hand in heavenly places. And now Jesus offers this to you. I will give you my status. You will be my brother, my sister. That's what I'm offering. And that is baptism to accept the death of Jesus that will wash away sins. It's as if Jesus says this, as you rise from the waters, look to me and believe. It's like he's saying to to you, Dante, this evening, I consider you my brother now. All I have is yours, my faith, my righteousness. Just come and sit with me. I'll give you everything. It's not on you. 
I'll do it. Tonight, the invitation for all of us is to come and receive Jesus by faith. If you want to trust in him and what he paid for you, you're welcome to partake of the supper. As we walk out after we pray um, and after we take the Lord's Supper, I invite you to touch the waters out there, all of you who've been baptized, because I want you to remember your baptism and what it means. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember the amazing new identity you are given in him, a brother and a sister. I'm going to pray for us now, and there's going to be two minutes of silence, and this is time for you to reflect on these things. If you have any questions for God, this is a great time to ask, and just sit. Just let them, let them be. Let them stand before God. Um, if there's anything that you realize, like, I can see some of my debt, you confess it to him. Here's the, here's the amazing thing that we're told about God, is that God is actually the absolute safest place to confess your sin. Isn't that incredible to think about? The one who defines what right and wrong is is the safest place. Why? Because all throughout the Bible, he's been described as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and quick to forgive. It's essential to who he is. He's the safest place to go. He's more gracious than any of us could ever be. So you can confess to him. And then... You're welcome, believers, to come and receive him by faith. And also, if you're still working that out, observe and just take it all in. That's totally fine, and we respect that. So I'm going to pray. There'll be two minutes of silence before we sing together and take the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible plan in which Jesus entered in and said, I will absorb their debts. I will pay. Thank you for your profound mercy and grace that enables us to forgive one another, to appeal to one another to forgive, to be a community where people are transformed. And may you do that work in our midst. We are so battered and torn. We are so weak. We struggle in our faith. So Jesus, give us more grace. Fill us with your grace and mercy this evening and send us out taking your grace to the world and lead us now as we pray.